Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 106, 19-23. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot, their God, they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous walks in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses chosen one stood has not Moses his chosen one stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he destroy them. Good morning. It's wonderful to see everybody today and especially welcome our brother Rick back. So good to see you, brother. So grateful to God for bringing you through and it's just uh just wonderful. It's great to have him here. And um God is just always at work in our lives in a variety of ways, uh, in just so many different circumstances that we're facing. And we just give God thanks for healing Rick and uh, for strengthening him. Ellen, I would like to request your prayers. We're going to be leaving a little bit later, heading for Oklahoma. Uh, Katie and David are leaving for Brazil tomorrow uh, uh, to do some work on behalf of Let's Start Talking. And we're on uh, babysitting duty. So uh, we need to be in Woodward tomorrow before our grandkids go to bed. So uh, please pray for our safe travels along the way. And um, uh, I can't help that it's the sorting time, Mike, and you know all that hard work, but we will be back in a couple of weeks and uh, we'll jump in. We'll definitely be ready to help. We're looking forward to, looking forward to that. I, I got my office covered, I promise. I'll get it done. This year, as we have worked our way through the book of Exodus, we have watched God keep his promise to a group of helpless, hopeless Hebrew slaves. He has delivered them from Egyptian bondage. He has called them into a covenant relationship with himself so that they are his chosen people, his treasured possession. He's poured out his grace upon them, revealing his name, revealing his very nature to them. And it all goes back to the promise that God made to them in Exodus chapter 6, a promise that's here on the the wall to, uh, to the right here, where God promises before this whole thing begins exactly what He's going to do. God said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I am the Lord. And our theme this year has been, He can and He will keep that promise. He can and He will. And we have seen God keeping that promise throughout our study. As He calls Moses at the burning bush and commissions him to go and bring about the deliverance as his emissary back to Egypt. We see God showing his power over the gods of Egypt through the plagues that come upon that land. And then we see the death of the firstborn, that devastating plague that comes upon Pharaoh and all the people in Egypt. Yet God's people experience deliverance through the amazing Passover that occurs and, and the redemption of, God's, of, the, of the firstborn of Israel. And then Israel essentially plunders Egypt by just saying, hey, would you give us some, some of your stuff while we're leaving? And the Egyptians just give them their money and their gold and their riches because that's how God had arranged for His people to plunder the nation. And off they go toward the wilderness, 
But then we know that Pharaoh changes his mind. He comes up against Israel, trapped with their backs at the Red Sea. And in the single greatest moment of salvation history in the Old Testament, the God of Israel parts the sea. And Israel passes through on dry land. And the Egyptians are destroyed in the waters as they cover the sea again. And there they are on the other shore. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God leads them forward. He gives them water in the middle of the desert. He gives them bread from heaven every day to eat. He gives them victory over their enemies that come upon them suddenly. And then He brings them to the mountain of the Lord, to Mount Sinai, there in the desert, where God shows His glory He shows His majesty and power and the flame and the smoke and the earthquake on Mount Sinai. And then God invites this former group of slaves into a covenant relationship with Him to be His people. And they will be... And He will be their God. And He gives them the terms of that covenant in the Ten Commandments at the core of that agreement. And then the the covenant law that follows in the chapters just after the Ten Commandments. And when Moses relates these terms to the people, remember what they say as they're gathered there at the foot of the mountain? They say, all that the Lord has said we will do. And so there at the foot of Mount Sinai, sacrifices are given. Burn offerings, whole offerings, and fellowship offerings. The people are sprinkled with the blood of the offerings, the blood of the covenant. And they enter into this covenant with the God of Israel, Yahweh, their God, Moses and Nadab and Abihu, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the, uh, many of the elders of the people take the food from those fellowship meals. They go up onto the mountain in Exodus chapter 24 and they eat that meal in the presence of God, seeing some aspect of the glory of the Lord. And we get caught up in this story, not just because it's an amazing story, but because we realize that it just completely parallels our own story. It connects so perfectly with us because we're the covenant people of God in Christ. Christ whose new covenant fulfills that under which Israel lived. We are a people who have been redeemed from sin. We are a people who have a covenant meal. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And we know that this promise that God gave to Israel is a promise that comes down to us. And the same, the same thing is true for us. He can, and He will, and He has. God keeps His promise to us, and He will keep His ultimate promises to us of eternal life because He is a faithful God. But the text that we come to today raises an almost unthinkable question. Well, He can, and He will, but what if we won't? What happens if the people of God rebel against the purposes of God and break their covenant with God, what happens then? Where does that leave this story? How do we go forward from that? And we find ourselves at that point in the text today. Moses has gone back up the mountain after the great time of of entering the covenant. He's been up on the mountain for 40 days. He's received the instructions about the tabernacle. This is how God will be present among Israel, not in a seen way. He will, his glory will be in the holy, the holy place. But the tabernacle and, uh, 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 instructions are given to Moses. He's there. And then God, 
God himself makes two copies of the law, two stones written on front and back, the heart of the covenant. One copy for the king who makes this agreement, one copy for the people. These tablets are written on by the finger of God, and he gives them to Moses to take down to be a witness to the people of their covenant. You can't imagine a more amazing moment for Moses and for what's happening, and yet that's exactly when everything goes wrong. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, the very familiar story. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought fellowship offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This whole thing begins with the Israelites wondering what in the world's happened to Moses. How long do we wait for this guy? It's been nearly six weeks. And Moses has been gone. What if he doesn't come back? What if something's happened to him? What if he's been consumed by the glory of God? We don't know what's going on with it. We don't know what happened to this fellow. So we need something to happen now. We need some gods in our presence. We need to have some visible representation of our God. And so they go to Aaron and make that request of him. Not really a request, but more uh, of a demand uh, to him. And we see that this new found commitment to Yahweh that's really recent in their experience is being undone by this delay and they revert back to what they have known after living for generations in an idolatrous land. And they ask for the calf. That may not surprise us a whole lot, given who these people are and how little they have had contact with Yahweh, but doesn't it surprise us a little bit that Aaron is complicit in what's going on in this story? The calf, the young bull, is an ancient Near Eastern symbol for divine power, used throughout the ancient Near East during this this time frame. And it's just a way of the people to connect in a physical manifestation the power of their God. This will be the way in which they envision their God. This will be the way, the conduit through which they will worship their God. He will, this will be the presence of God among them. And do you notice how they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? 
Everyone in Israel knows that it's Yahweh who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. That's the name of their God. That is their particular God. He's the only true God, but that's their God. And to attach his name to this calf, to to in any way connect the name of God or the deliverance of these people from slavery to this calf is nothing less than a total perversion of God's nature and a breaking of the covenant. The covenant is broken. They have broken its terms. As we look on to this scene, one of the things that strikes me is that man, and that means me and you and every human being who's ever lived, man has an amazing capacity to settle for less. They know the one true living God who has displayed his mighty power in ways beyond human imagination. And they exchange that for a calf. Probably a wood core overlaid with gold. They turn away from the glory of God, the living God, to a lifeless hunk of metal that stands there before them. This is a God that they can see. It's an image of God that they can touch, that in a certain sense that they can control, but they have exchanged the eternal, awesome God of the universe for a lifeless idol of wood and gold. We're told in the text that this is a God who can go before them. This is a God that they can take wherever they want to take. Because, you know, sometimes that pillar of fire and that pillar of uh, cloud, it goes in places you don't necessarily want to go. But now we can lead the way. We have a God who can go before us. We just sacrifice to Him. And they're doing that already. On day one, they are sacrificing. They are essentially feeding this calf. And don't you know that He looks on with delight upon them for doing so. And there's no great call for holy living or submission when your God is a matter of your own creation. And as we read this, and it's just kind of a shock to us, even though we've heard it so many times, one of the things we puzzle about, since we're not idol makers ourselves in the classic sense of, of creating some object to, to channel our our. our image of God or who God is, it is a reminder of how the same thing continues to happen even when actual material images aren't made, when we just make God into an image of our own liking. And this is the struggle of humankind from the beginning, and that is to make God into our image, to make, a, make God or to envision God in such a way that he justifies what I want justified, that he validates what I want validated, that he puts his stamp of approval on the things that I want him to approve of. And, and, and it can be in subtle ways, it can be in crass ways. I mean, how many times have we heard or have we perhaps even thought how important it is that God wants us to be happy, that God just wants our lives to be right. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to enjoy ourselves. He, he wants us to have the things that we need. And we, we, we envision that that's the nature of God. And how many times have people justified sin? Justified, I mean, absolute rebellion and sin against God by, by claiming that God's ultimate desire for them is to be happy and to be in the situation that would, would please them. 
And, and we can justify everything from the greed that we have and the materialism that, that might raise up in our hearts to gossiping or whatever, whatever it is, we can find a way to shape God in such a way that He's okay with it. That He's alright with what we're doing. You know, God, God gets it. God knows that our work comes first. God knows that our job comes first, and He's okay with that. He's okay that we don't have a lot of time for Him, because He knows we live in a busy, hectic world. And He knows, you know, just show up every once in a while, that's, that's fine with me. And you know, Sunday morning, that's your only day, right? So sleep in. Why, you don't need to, don't worry about Bible class, don't worry, just sleep in, take care of yourself, get some rest. You've worked hard all week, you deserve a little bit. Don't, I mean, it's amazing the kinds of things that can float around in our heads, just in superficial ways like that, let alone ways that might really cause us to be sinning against God. As if God isn't concerned with our spiritual discipline, with the time we spend in the Word or Meditation. We're busy people. We've got too much to do. We don't have all that. We don't have so much time just to to stop and be with Him and to be thinking. And and He's okay. He understands that. It's just you know, don't we? Isn't it just the tendency that to some degree all of us may have at some time to just assume that God likes everything just like we do and is completely happy with me and with the expression of my faith. That's one of the great temptations that we face, is not to behold the true living God on the throne, but to behold some image of God that we project that doesn't bring about any conviction or doesn't call for any kind of holiness or sacrifice on our part. And when we shape God into a more suitable image, then we can excuse our own unsuitable behavior The problem with this, besides it being sinful, even from our own vantage point, the problem with this is that this idolatrous version of God can't bless you, can't comfort you, can't give you peace. That, that version of God that, that I shape in my head to justify whatever I want to do, that God... That God can't give me life. He can't give me peace because it's not God. It's a version of God. It's a version that I might create in my mind, but it's not the living God. It's not the God of the universe. It's not the sovereign Lord of all things, but rather a, 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 an aspect of Him that's kind of come under my control. And, and it's like no wonder, no wonder there are people who would certainly consider themselves as Christian people who find that there's not really any fulfillment in their life of faith, that there's nothing really coming their way when they worship the Lord. Because the image of God we're worshiping isn't even Him. It's like it's impossible. I mean, do we really want to, to submit our lives to some image of God that we create? Of course not. There's no, there's no meaning in that. There's no purpose in that. And, and so it's, it, it ends up leading to our not being committed. How can you be committed to just some figment of your imagination or some, some version of God that isn't really Him? That's not very inspiring in our lives. And when we live like that, 
Whenever I'm doing something like that in my life, justifying myself in some way, especially doing so by changing the image of God in some fashion, it's just the same as dancing around the calf. It's, It's essentially the same kind of thing. And I think... As I look at this story, I think, how can, it, how can this have gone different? I mean, how, how can it go different for me? How can I keep from ever having this happen in my life? And I think one of the things that's really obvious in this story is how these people should have been thinking about who their God is. These people should have been meditating on who their God is. They have just, that morning, eaten their breakfast from food that God rained down from heaven. They are enjoying freedom that God has given them by delivering them from their enemies and destroying them in the Red Sea. They have come into a covenant with God that can bring about not only the forgiveness of sins under, that, under the terms of that covenant, but will then allow them to be God's light to a world in need of knowing the true living God. But that's not what they're thinking about. That's not what they're want. They are not focusing on God. And when we focus on God and what He's done for us and the forgiveness that we have and the grace that we've enjoyed in our life and the comfort and the peace and the joy we've known because of God, when we think about Him, when we come to Him, when we come before Him and worship Him in that way, it keeps us from, from having that other view of God, that competing view. And to long for His Word, to long to be close to Him. We sang a moment ago, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. The psalmist said, Oh, when can I go and be with my God? Do we long for God? Are we longing for Him? Are we longing for His Word? Peter talks about longing for the sincere milk of the Word that we can grow thereby. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I think of the babies in this church. The babies in this church do not long for milk as if their life depended on it. They long for milk because their life depends upon it. And they want it. They want to live. They want to grow. And Peter said, that's the way we've got to be with God have that kind of desire. We want to live. We want to grow. We want to, we want to come closer to God. We want to know Him. And then to seek the fellowship of God's people. Our brother this morning talked about how, he mentioned in our prayer, that the network of support that we have in the church and how vital and important that is. And when it comes to the Word of God this morning, I had an amazing Bible class this morning on showing favoritism. And if you, if you were there, you were convicted, and you, got, you have something to think about. I, I so appreciate Tim teaching that class today, taking us through the first part of James chapter 2. John was teaching about how, how to study the Bible and principles of really getting into the Word and understanding the Word. Wednesday nights the last few weeks, oh my, we have had an amazing look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, plummeting some depths and levels that are... We're just grateful. We're grateful for the teachers that we have here. Emmett's been doing an amazing job in that class. I was going to miss it this last week and ask Randy to record it because I want to hear it. I want to hear what's... I'm just saying we have so many opportunities to feed on the Word together, let alone, of course, at home and all the opportunities that we have during the week. But to draw near to God. We do not want to forsake the Lord. 
Don't settle for less. Don't settle for some version of God. But come to know and, and, and draw near to the true living God and experience His power, His peace, the fulfillment of, of being in a relationship with Him. We should never settle for less, but only for God. And of course, as we look at this story, we recognize the fact, of course, that God knows everything that's going on down at the bottom of the mountain. As the story continues in verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, God sees it all. God is not the calf. The calf sees nothing. God sees and hears every word. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. And behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. First thing I want for us to notice is the anger and the wrath of God toward idolatry. God is looking down on this scene, watching these people point to this calf and say, yeah, there's the Lord. We sacrificed to Him today. We're dancing around His altar right now. And here is the God Almighty in heaven viewing this and thinking, Really? That? Really? When we do this to God, He looks... He's, that's, that's, that's what you think of me? That's who you think I am? That's how you're approaching me? And His wrath burns against this. And he says to Moses, let me alone. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to consume them and start all over with you. And let me just say, when God says to Moses, let me alone, it's not as if Moses can stop him. <laughs> Would we all agree that if God wants to do something, no human being is going to get in the way of God and stop him from doing it. What God is doing at this particular moment and with that phrase is basically saying to Moses, this is where I am, this is what I'm going to do. And if you do nothing, this is about to happen. God uses this kind of language oftentimes with the prophets, where he lays out what's going to happen, but then he allows the prophet and longs for the prophet to intercede on behalf of the people. And that, of course, is exactly what happens here in the verses that follow. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses intercedes. Moses appeals to God's character and faithfulness. I think Moses does exactly what God wanted Moses to do, and what he gave him the opportunity to do. 
And he basically makes three arguments. He said, why would you reverse the action of your great power that delivered them from Egypt by now destroying them? And secondly, do you hear the Egyptians? What are the Egyptians going to say? Oh, he brought them out here and then they perished. Not, oh no, they didn't just perish. He killed them. He brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. And then Moses says, and what about the promises that have been made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Israel? About the, about the seed, about the land. Tonight, we'll talk a little bit about this whole relenting and changing mind. I'll leave that up to your discussions. But God listens to what Moses has to say. And I think is giving him an opportunity in a, in a sense of testing him. Giving Moses an opportunity to move into a new role, a deeper role as intercessor and mediator for the people. He's been doing that. But in this story, he advances to a much deeper level, as we'll see in just a moment. I believe God welcomes what Moses says here. And he sends him down the mountain, essentially with his blessing, to deal with the problem. And that's what goes on in verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And notice, notice how often, just notice the focus on the tablets. He went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. I would dare say there is nothing at that point on the face of the earth with a greater significance or value than tablets written upon by God Himself, inscribing the covenant with His people. And we're drawn to see that with a repetition about the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of the shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. I think it's really helpful for us to see that as the mediator, when Moses goes down, Moses does not say, hey guys, no big deal. You know, God's pretty upset with you, but I think maybe we need... Moses' anger burns. Because as a mediator, he's there not only to speak to the people and to try to bring the people back into a relationship with God. As mediator, he is there to speak on behalf of God. And Moses' anger burns against them. And he throws the tablets to the ground. I would suggest this is not a spontaneous act of human anger that he later regretted. This is an act of divine judgment upon the people who have broken the covenant. And now God, through his mediator, 
literally breaks the tablets of the covenant at the foot of the mountain. Do you notice that? At the foot of the mountain. Go back through Exodus and read about that phrase, the foot of the mountain. It's at the foot of the mountain that they entered into a covenant with God. It was at the foot of the mountain that they offered sacrifices and were sprinkled with blood. It was at the foot of the mountain that they stood and beheld the glory of God and said, all that the Lord has said we will do. And now Moses takes the tablets at the foot of the mountain and in an act of demonstrating the judgment of God upon his people, throws them to the earth. He destroys the idol. He grinds the gold down and throws it in the water supply. Perhaps a lot of things are going there. Not only is it going to be bitter, but that will pass through them. It will become desecrated and defiled and impure for any future use. And Moses takes care of the idolatry among them. In verses 21 to 24, he addresses his his brother in one of the more tragic and almost tragically comic in a sense moments of scripture what are you doing how did, how did the people push you to this point point? and Aaron's like well, I'm just a bystander here they gave me this stuff we put it in and boom this thing like self created this calf just it just popped out of the oven there it was I, would, I, would, I didn't do anything and by the way you know you've been gone a long time You've been gone a long time. If you, if you kind of abandon it, it's just amazing. And, 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 you know, Moses just doesn't even deal with it right now. Aaron just gets, it's okay. Maybe, maybe we'll see about that in the future chapters. But at this point, Moses is taking care of business. And he says in verse 25 and following, who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites, the sons of Levi, come over and they stand with Moses. And he said, this is what the Lord says, strap on your sword, each one of you, and go throughout this camp. And look carefully, go back and forth, and look diligently, and kill those who are worshipping the calf. It's obvious from the number that are reported dead, 3,000, that people were given a chance at this time to repent, but there's some that would not. They were destroyed. God will not allow idolatry to take root in Israel at the very inception of the nation of Israel as the covenant people of God. Can you imagine the ripple effect that is going to have on redemptive history if Israel at this point allows idolatry in her midst and turns away from Yahweh and and forsakes her role as the light to the nations? No, the, the idolatry is dealt with immediately. But even now, I don't know if we think about this, but there's a question hanging in the balance here. Because as we read this story, we recognize this covenant's gone. There are terms to the covenant. The people have broken them. There are tablets of the testimony. God's representative has shattered them. What's going to happen now? And in the closing paragraph of this story in verse 30 the next day Moses said to the people you've sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord perhaps perhaps I can make atonement for your sin so Moses returned to the Lord and said alas this people has sinned a great sin they have made for themselves gods of gold but now If you will forgive their sin, 
But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Talk about Moses growing in his role as intercessor and mediator. He offers himself up for the nation of Israel. Blot me out. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. There's judgment here in the plague. There's looming judgment because this, not threat, but this announcement of God that wrath is still to be poured out on these people if they turn from Him, I believe is speaking about future and what will eventually happen to Israel down the road. But there is an initial judgment of a plague, but notice then the grace of God. Go on. I'm going to bring you to the land. My angel will go before you. He doesn't accept Moses' offer about being blotted out. He basically says, no, the people who've sinned will be blotted out of my book. And we end this part of the story. There's more to come in the next couple of chapters. We'll be covering. But we end this part of the story with God's book. In the ancient Near East, people kept records of populations, even, even records of like large herds of sheep. I mean, the, the numbers and so forth, they were kept track of. Uh, and when a certain number for a clan or a village got larger than any individual could remember all themselves, a book was created. And in the book was written the names of the people who were part of the clan or the village or the town or the region. As people were born, their names were written in the book. As people died, their names were blotted out of the book. The book was a current record of all the living who belonged to that group. God's book is a record of all who belong to Him. And when it comes to God's book, death does not blot your name out. Because whether physical death has occurred or not, we belong to God. That is not something that takes you out of God's book. Death does not remove you. You still belong to the Lord. But breaking of your covenant with your God takes your name out of the book. Persisting in sin without repentance Blots your name. God blots your name out of the book. Several times in the Old Testament, God talks about blotting people out of his book of remembrance or out of his book. In the New Testament, Paul talks to the Philippians about their names being written in the book of life. John, more than once in the great apocalypse of Revelation, speaks of the Lamb's book of life or God's book of life. Those who have eternal life, it's the same imagery, it's the same idea or thought. And I think we could agree that there's no greater tragedy for an individual than to have their name blotted out of God's book. Can you imagine your name blotted out of God's book? What that means. 
That happens in this story. That's how sobering this story is. I don't know if it's more than the 3,000, but at least them who would not repent. God said those that have rebelled, I blot their name out. Some of them may still have been living in the camp, but their name was blotted out of God's book because they'd broken His covenant and would not repent. And when I consider that, it makes me consider my own life, my own relationship with God. And it causes me to look to see, am I... Am I changing who God really is so that it will go a little bit long with what I want to do? Am I making Him more in my image? Is there something between me and the true living God? Because that's idolatry. And when we do that, there's such spiritual danger for us and there's such anger that comes against us from, the, from the, God's wrath for doing that in breaking our covenant with Him. If there is anything in your life today that in any way is between you and the Lord tear that idol down we've got to tear these idols down whatever they are whatever images they are and come to the true living God and behold him in his glory and his majesty and hear his exclusive claims on our lives and not settle for something less, something less than that full demand of our heart and our life and everything we are. Anything less than that isn't worth living for. It's nothing. It's of our own creation. But oh, when we understand who God is and we give him our lives, when we enter into that covenant and say everything the Lord said we'll do and we thank him for our grace because so often we fall short. But we live in that covenant. We're so blessed today to have an intercessor. Did you notice that God turns down Moses? Moses says, hey, I'll uh, bought me out. But that wouldn't have worked, would it? Because Moses is a man. I'm pretty sure Moses doesn't enter the promised land. I'm not saying in just the promised land. I'm not saying he's blotted out. Don't get me wrong there. But he's got some sin in his life too, doesn't he? With all of Moses' good intent, with all of the love that he has for the people, which is so admirable, he can't give his life for them. But our mediator does. Because of who he is. Because he's the son of the living God. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all. And there it is. That's how our names get in the book of life. Because Jesus Christ has taken away our sins. May we be so filled with gratitude at God's grace and his mercy toward us that we will never forsake the Lord, that we will never try to make Him into our image, but will do our very best to submit our hearts and lives to Him, that He can transform us into His image. If you're not a Christian today, you have a mediator who gave His life 
that you might be reconciled to God. And if you believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by His blood you can be forgiven, then come confess Him today. And to be baptized into Christ and have your sins washed away and enter that new covenant as God puts His Spirit living within you and puts your name in His book. If there are any who need to come to the Lord today, we plead with you to invite you. Let's stand together and sing.